Separation Sallies and Disassociation Daddies. Pop your collar against the chill of the endless void. Munch a bonbon to plug the puncture in your soul. And remember, if you didn't live stream your act of charity, did it even really happen? Oh, you wouldn't happen to have changed for a talk told to me, would you? Get out of here, I'm busy. Welcome back to Le Podocast. I am Omen Thomas Sade. And I am Nick McGill. Together, we are the Feckless Moans. And this, my weirdos and wonders, is Talk Tall to Me. A disquieting amble along the decaying industrial district of Progrock, in which No Way Home Nick and Open Sewers Omen will make a delicious stone soup using each and every track that Ruination Rock Band Jethro Tull have ever wrapped up in caution tape. We will brick up the broken background buildings with Martin Barr. We will plunge into the polychronic spaces with the punctual David Pegg, and we will make the most of mixed scanning with Martin Alcock. And if we can tenaciously tread the tall trivium, we may just wind up with our hats held out to that wizard of the wildlife, the freeway flautist, the leapfrogging long hauler, a man so caustic his gaze can be used to remove rust from old cars, Ian Architecturalist Anderson. Well then. Omen. Nick. Omen. It is a momentous day here at the podcast, not least of which because... This is the final track off of the album proper of Rock Island. Fact. Actual fact. The first fact on the podcast today. And the last. And the last one. Buckle up. Yeah, we are on track 10. No bonus tracks. We are definitely at that era where the re-releases, they didn't pull anything out of the deep basements they instead put on like bonus, like live tracks and things, uh, an, an excerpt from a concert in like Zurich, Switzerland from 1937 and, and the basement tapes where they played just right. with Martin and, and Ian, you know, the dressing room tapes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which are great fun stuff there. Oh, sure. But certainly nothing that we will clutter up the feed with. So Nick, what is the very track about which we are talking tall this evening? Again, track 10. Off of Rock Island, this is Strange Avenues. Les Avenues étranges. Orange, Orange Avenues, yep. Shall we put them into the canals of our ear and have a listen? Yes, our collective ear will listen to Strange Avenues. McGill. Goodness gracious. Those avenues were strange. It is kind of a strange song, isn't it? You know, yes, it is. And, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about why, why it feels that way, because just on the last note, I was like, oh, that's an odd way to end the album. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a potent way to end the album. I think it's kind of powerful, but it's it's almost like, okay, we're not doing music anymore. This is it. Goodbye. You know, it's almost like a yeah. mic drop, it feels like. And granted, we'll get into that content-wise too, but like, it's just like, and we float off into the ether and we're done. Yeah. Oh, you wanted more? 
Too bad. Too bad. Ian Anderson, out. Audi. Musically, sonically here, it's like they had all these like little pieces of tape left over and then they just brushed them up and handed yeah. Steve Wilson like a coffee can and said, make something of this. <laughs> Granted, this was pre-Steve Wilson. I mean, this is actually on the track. This is or on the album, rather. This is not a bonus track, but still, it's very... Yeah. I hear pieces of this and pieces of this and pieces of this, but it's all... It is a melange. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate way of describing it. The way I would describe it is it feels like a really successful instrumental mm. that then some lyrics got whacked onto. Mm. Like that first couple of minutes, that first, it's about two minutes and 15 seconds of instrumental before Ian starts singing. It's almost 2.30 on the nose, actually, when he starts singing. Yeah. Right. And it is so great up to that point. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the song goes awry with Ian singing, but I think that the vocal... Now, something about the vocal melody that is not as successful as the mm. instrumental melodies. Yeah. And the way that the instruments fit together. Some gorgeous stuff in this song. The way that it starts, that twangy acoustic guitar, the synth underlaying everything, the flute popping in and out. That's fantastic. We have a beautiful moment of accelerando at about 35 seconds where the bass starts and then the bass and the flute speed up suddenly. That synth in the beginning, like the first note or notes that we hear in the beginning, that synth, it's almost bagpipe to me. It's got that drone, that underlying yeah, drone, sure. and it sticks in there for... I think uh, right up until that accelerando, I think it's it's the foundation of what we're hearing going forward on this song. And that synth is likely played by Mr. Martin Alcock. I believe it is. I believe he has songs one and ten, if I remember correctly. Correct. That is correct. And this correct. is song ten. ten. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So Kissing Willie and this number. Funny. Thanks, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, very, very cool. At about 2.20, we get some string plucks, probably synthy strings, but we go boom, 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 boom. As if someone was working with the cello or the viola to get yes. that sound. That pizzicato sound. Very interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Around that same area, I have it at about, oh, I have it at 2.16. So that's before Ian starts singing. We have a like a voice setting on the keys, mm. a choral setting almost. It's very interesting. It feels very compositional. And then, well, we'll talk about the lyrics, obviously, in the second half. But I have the sensation every time I listen to this, it almost feels like two songs that got squished together in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Even some of these musical phrases, these musical sections, because we do have kind of some peaks and valleys and some kind of amalgamations of sounds there, some of the, the musical part in that first two and a half minutes sounds slightly disparate as well to me. It doesn't feel as clean 
it's not like here's one musical theme that we're going to exploit and create variations on all the way through the song, yeah. which we have on a number of other tracks on this. Absolutely. We were talking about that exact thing with Big Riffin Mando or even Whaler's Dues. Yeah. We have seen perfect examples of that. This is the tune. We're going to work off of it. Everybody go. We're going to hear this in variations all the way through. Whereas this is like this first 15 seconds is going to be this. Then we'll transfer into this. Then we'll hard transfer into this. It doesn't even sound like it's supposed to blend together or move from one to the other, but it still happens. Which does, perhaps that's intentional. Let's assume that it's intentional. Mm -hmm. That does give you the feeling of walking down a main road in a city, a main avenue in a city, and seeing down all the streets as you pass. Yeah. And down this street, this thing is happening. And then you briefly look at the next street and this, you get a glimpse of this other thing. You look down this street and it's a bachelor party and you look down this street and it's a funeral and you kind of get that mixed. It feels fragmented. It feels like this is recollections, fragments of recollections being stitched together. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's a four minute song. It's just over four minutes. So to me, it almost feels like, well, we got to put one more song on there. You know, if they had popped something else on here, this would have been a bonus track. And I would have been like, yeah, I get why this is a bonus track. To be clear, neither of us are saying that this is a bad song or we dislike it. No, 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 no. It's very interesting. And it's it's got all of these different tall elements that get thrown into the stone soup. And it works. And I'm not complaining about it. It's just so different from what we've heard in a while. Speaking of tall elements and prog elements, I believe this song is mostly in 4-4, but I believe that there are a couple of measures of three thrown in there almost as transition points, maybe to help dovetail some of those disparate sections. Yeah. I was able to start counting when it became really solid at about one and a half. Mm-hmm. All that really ambient soundscape leading up to that point, that ambient nightmare, I could not figure it out. An ambient nightmare? An ambient nightmare, yeah, exactly. It could have been 4-4 leading up to that point as well, but I couldn't grasp a solid timing, a solid beat there. It's hard to, like, this could be played, there's a way of writing music where you don't even write measures in. Yeah. It's just squiggles. It's just squiggles. I almost feel like that's what this is. Here we go, now it's about to start up. I don't think there's any, I don't think there are any measures in there. It's all like free play. It just says noodle in the sheet music. Well, and the way that they're trading back and forth, you actually can do that. It's like one group cadenza that just is uncounted, you know? Right. And you could do that. And you could also write that in a way where on the sheet music, there are measures, but they're not really apparent. It's really interesting. It's very freeform in a way. I was just thinking it feels a lot like freeform jazz, where it's like, okay, we're going to improvise in this key, follow my lead, and then... The piano picks up and then everybody kind of builds off of that. And then by a minute and a half in, everybody knows what's happening. And then you can throw in your solos and everybody does it amazingly. Improvise exactly these notes in this order and this time. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Yes, I will. Anything else to say musically about this song? We have a lot to talk about with reviews and the strange tale of Martin Alcock. That's right. That's right. So is there anything else that we want to say about the musical aspects of this song? A couple more notes, actually. We've got 
reverb on the voice in that first bit while Ian is still kind of singing slowly before he gets he really picks up at about three minutes where it gets really hectic. And I, I can't quite tell if it's just reverb or there's someone else's voice back there very softly. In the winter sun. Could be his. He could be doubled up. Yeah, or, it, it, I mean, it could be Peggy. We know Peggy sang. When he says, just like you, at the tail end of the second verse, mm. it sounds very just reminiscent like of... I think it's Heavy Horses, the sound of a line end on Heavy Horses. Yes, 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 yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. It smacks of that, yeah. And he does that same- I couldn't tell you the lyric on that. No, but it's a it's the same vocal direction. He's going, bum, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. And there was that kind of, uh, like, dropping into the lower register there. Well, it might not take a lot to be alone, just like you. That's it. That was the two final notes I had. Well, and then just to touch on the end, which we already talked a little bit about, you know what I feel about this song? It feels like it's a little top heavy. Like you put it in the water Mm. and it goes bloop. And you're like, oh, the bottom is so small. (laughs) Like the ending, the way that it ends is just like, are you ever lonely just like me? It does that single flute low that we just heard. Rattlesnake Trail, Ears of Tin, somewhere around there. We just heard that single one that was reminiscent of the trio that we heard. In Farm on the Freeway. Yes, that one. Yeah. Just like me. As soon as you hear it, you expect there to be maybe a little something else, especially, again, because the beginning is so ambient, mm-hmm. so much ambient. I would expect on the end of this song to have a bit more lead out, but you're right. It is kind of like, and, oh, and our train's leaving goodbye. Yeah. Yes, we are We are late. Yep. Yeah, it's Dunsky. Those three brief little stanzas flip by pretty quickly on the back of that solid train of the musical f- water flow, and then it's just, it's done. And there's not a lot of structure in those verses either. It's just three quatrains, a little bit of rhyming structure, A-B-A-B sort of, but that's it. There's no even proto-chorus. Yeah. But that being said, there is some substance in there that I think we can unpack. Oh, yes. We will unpack the substance. We will unpack it after you, after the Omen show during halftime. It's all you, baby. <laughs> hope I don't have a costume malfunction. Oh, my nipples. All seven. So, Nick McGill. Strange Avenues on the album Rock Island. Rock Island is often referred to as a much maligned album. It is, it is an often maligned album by fans and critics. Yeah. This era in general, really. 
doesn't get a lot of love. And I do understand, for instance, ultimateclassicrock.com in their ranking of Jethro Tull albums from worst to best ranks Rock Island as the worst Jethro Tull album of all time. Wow. Which, let's take a step back for a moment and consider that that is an, an asinine prospect of even doing. Why would you rank, why would you take a body of work and rank it best? It's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Let's rank Shakespeare's sonnets from worst to best. That's so subjective. And it's just somebody's opinion. But interesting that they, they say that this is, in their opinion, the worst album. It's very BuzzFeed listicle. Very much. But that tendency to say, that, oh, this album was a miss, that kind of comes back over and over again. I didn't find a lot of official reviewing of the album. Kind of a lot of the narratives that are out there in terms of its reception were that the band had gained a bit of momentum with Crest of a Knave, especially since Crest won the hard rock heavy metal performance, beating out ACDC, James Addiction, Iggy Pop, etc. Yeah. And then the next album to come out was Rock Island. And I think that there was a, I think there was an expectation that with that new wave of publicity, with Crest having been fairly well received, that Rock Island was going to blow everything up out of the water. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. People across the writing about it, people have said that it felt a little remote, like Ian had really ensconced himself in the Hebrides and was, he'd created this group of songs that didn't really have any overall message except this kind of general dissatisfaction with having to tour in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that doesn't feel inaccurate. If you look at the reviews, I use heavy quotations around that word, of people who enjoy expressing their opinions on the internet, it is a lot of two-star reviews. Wow. And the general consensus seems to be that it lacks passion. One writer says, there's lots of sound and fury here, but it signifies nothing. Of course, a reference to Hamlet. You know, people say Happy Water, the song is, is quite good. Christmas song is quite good. There's an impression that it is a bit, that they've moved away from Prague with this album. Mm. Which I think that that's a valid argument to make in some ways. We have less of the compositional and rhythmic complexities that we have on other albums with Rock Island. Yeah. Tell was exploring that more heavy, that heavy sound. You know, some people feel that it's an appropriate bridge from the world of the really kind of intricate rock to a little bit more of a modern sound, which was a little bit more grounded or dug in and concentrating on musicianship rather than composership. So this is kind of the stepping stone into Catfish Roots. Are they saying, are they satisfied that that is, those are the albums with musicianship? Because I don't think they are. Yeah. I don't think that, that that's what they're looking for and that's what they think it is. One line that stood out to me, and I think this is a, a good way of summing it up, is to say, this is from Music Review by David Bowling on blogcritics.org. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Rock Island tends to get lost in the large Jethro Tull catalog as there are a number of better stops. Still, the album remains very listenable and is a good example of Tull's current sound that, that was written in 2011. And I think that what we're hearing in this album is something that I'm 
actually we're going to talk about here in a second with the story of Martin Alcock. But mm. what I get the sense is that people perceive a lack of originality and a lack of passion in the album. And I, I can understand why people see that or why people feel that. But I still think it's a, it's a great album to listen to. There's a lot of fun stuff on it. I do agree that it doesn't have necessarily... There's no one metaphor, one central metaphor, one image that you can keep coming back to. And so it does feel a little vague in terms of the listening experience. But I think the quote-unquote problem with that is because it's being compared too tall. It's being compared to 20 years of really solid albums leading up until this point. And yes, musicians are going to change their sound. And almost always there comes a point in the fandom where it's like, nah, it's not just real tall anymore. I think that it was Cato, the Stoic philosopher, who said, comparison is the thief of joy. To compare is to despair, isn't it? You say that too, right? Yeah, but now I'm saying what Cato said because it sounds better. Oh, yeah. It's cooler, yeah. It's cooler. And you get to name drop an ancient Roman. Always good. Yeah. Always makes the ladies panty drop. Panties droped. <laughs> That's the past tense, yeah. So we're returning now in our further discussion to a book which had gotten lost under a pile of other items. And that is <laughs> A Passion Play, the story of Ian Anderson and Jethro told by Brian Rabbi. I found it in a pile, dusted it off, and I'm excited to jump back into it because obviously we were talking about the albums that came out in the last year, so this book didn't have anything about that. Chapter 24 is From Fairport to Tull, The Strange Tale of Martin Alcock. I will not read the whole thing. I'm going to cherry pick, but I do want to read a couple of big sections in the beginning. Sure. Martin Alcock tells the bizarre story of how he joined Jethro Tull. Fairport Convention opened up for Jethro Tull in 1987 on the 20th anniversary tour of Europe and the USA. I, Martin, had been in Fairport for a couple of years by this stage, and there was a good feeling in the Fairport camp, which didn't go unnoticed by Ian. Then I was in the local pub at lunchtime on New Year's Day 1988 with Dave Pegg, who lives about 300 yards away. <laughs> a recurring theme is that Dave Pegg and Martin Alcock are really great friends. And he said to give Ian a call, which I did later that day. He asked me if I'd like to play with Jethro Tull on keys. I said I didn't have any. <laughs> and that it wasn't one of my instruments. He said something to the effect of, Oh my God. You'd better go get one and get practicing then. Author's note, this says a lot about Ian Anderson's salesmanship, for want of a better word. In the 60s, he persuaded novice Jeffrey Hammond that he should play the bass in the band. Yeah. By the 1980s, he has gone one better and convinced an already established stringed instrument aficionado in Alcock that he could swap to the keys. I asked, why me? Anderson said, I'm tired of flash keyboard players who overplay everything. And you play guitar and mandolin. Really interesting perspective. Really interesting. And one can imagine after the days of special guests Eddie Jobson and PJV, they are extremely piano-y pianists. Yeah, yeah, that's valid. Who might have their own ideas about how something should be played. Heaven forbid. I think the comparison to Jeffrey, though, is actually is really apt because Jeffrey was also, like, one of the simpler bassists, and we talk about it back in that era. Like, yes, him versus Glenn is, like, night and day. Right. 
they both have their own virtues there, but it allows Ian to be like, yes, yes, let's do this, man. We'll build more of those. I also think that at this point where they've Tull has built up such a huge catalog, it makes a lot of sense to want to have multi-instrumentalists. Oh, sure. You can swap things around for the different arrangements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, he goes on. So I suppose I had the advantage of the lack of technique. I bought a Roland D50 and borrowed a whole bunch of other stuff off Ian and practiced about 18 hours a day for three months. I recorded part of the machine on 21st March 1988 using Kieran Halpin's 10-string bazooki. I overdubbed the second guitar on the 25th. My first gig was at the Shoreline Amphitheater near San Francisco on the 1st of June 1988, and my last was in San Francisco Civic Center on the 17th of December 1991, 231 gigs later. Wow. So, a fairly short stint, but a very intensive one, as we will go on to hear. Yeah. Just a couple of other interesting references. He refers to Peter Batesse as Mozart Reborn. <laughs> He says of Martin Barr, I hadn't imagined Martin Barr to be such a thoroughly nice chap, one of life's few real gentlemen. That is the universal thing I hear about Martin, is he's just a sweetie pie. And I want to meet him. He also goes on to say that there was some tension between the tour managers and the band. Hmm. Kenny Willey was at the helm of the crew and always seemed to be working too hard. Greg Burkhart was the tour manager and very unpopular he was, too. Peggy, he goes on to say how good friends they were. It, he also lists a number of people from Fairport that Tall poached, including a sound person, monitor engineer, lighting engineer. Wow, holy cow. And Peggy says, and I think this is fascinating, I thought at the time that it was as if Ian was trying to get some of the Fairport convention camaraderie into Jethro Tall. Interesting. A lot of what I read between the lines of this was that Martin Alcock was saying that it was kind of a a serious affair and not a lot of fun. That playing in Fairport was a big love fest and everyone was just having a great time playing and that Tull was a bit strict and a bit, well, we're here to work, so let's get on with it. Yeah. And I think that is a little bit of what comes through in the album. I think the album is great musically. I think if you listen between the notes... Possibly what people were picking up on is is this sense of a lack of fun. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a great way to put it. That really does kind of help to explain that fog throughout the album that you just kind of can't put your finger on. To support that, Alcock says, Ian is the music of Jethro Tull. You play his notes, nothing else. Most of the time, he played my parts anyway. (laughs) I didn't actually get onto too many tracks. So I think in the recording process, it sounds like I get the sense from Martin Alcock is that he wanted to have a little bit more of a creative outlet with the band. And it was more of a do what you're told gig. Yeah. In terms of why he left the band, he says, I have three small children. And when I came home from the U.S. in November of 96, I asked my three-year-old what my name was. And she said, gig. Ooh. I thought... That's enough then, and left soon after. Wow. Yeah, he's not even on Catfish. It sounds like he toured for like two or three years, but he's not on Catfish. Let's see. Was 88 to 91. Yes, but then he must have also, he must have toured for a couple of more years with some other bands. Catfish is 91, so yeah, he must have left before they started in earnest starting that album. Or 
they recorded it and Ian wanted to play all those parts anyway. Well, there are a handful of different keyboard credits on Catfish. It's just not Martin. Yeah, uh, yeah. He makes another reference to how unpleasant the tour manager was. Is it because the tour manager wanted to have fun? I, I, maybe he didn't. Maybe that was part of the... Yeah. He references that he probably wouldn't have stayed so long if Peggy hadn't been there. Mm. Makes it out to sound like Dave Pegg was fantastic. And he says his favorite memories are working so much with Dave Pegg, having a laugh with Doan and the crew, playing the intro to Locomotive Breath mm. at Hockenheimering in Germany with 130,000 people all to myself. <sighs> Standing at the center spot at Wembley Stadium two days earlier, the day before we supported Fleetwood Mac. I've seen my heroes standing there from being very young. Oh, I got goosebumps. Woo, that's amazing. So really, I think he provides such a fascinating perspective into the band, especially because he is coming in from the outside, doing a short yeah. stint and leaving. He kind of doesn't have pressure of, of spinning in a certain way. Without that facade that PJV and Eddie Jobson came in with, with that extra flash, like he was just like, I'm coming in to play keys. I don't know how to play keys. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with it. And he did. I mean, I guess they just needed somebody to fill in for a little bit. And it sounds like they were touring their butts off. As they still do. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Rook what he thought your name was, and he said podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, it's time to hang up the headphones. I'm so nope. sorry. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> Nick, welcome back to the podcast. We have freshened up our cheese bags, and we are here to talk lyrics about Strange Avenues. That's right. Strange lyrics to Strange Avenues. Yeah. This is our second instance. It's a lot less direct compared to Big Riff and Mando. Big Riff and Mando was like, this is a story, and this happened. Yes. Give or take some embellishments. Strange Avenues feels like the poetic cousin of that. It's so self-referential. Yes. But it's not straight up like, this is what happened. Yes. It's a little like for a thousand mothers, maybe. Mm-hmm. The impression that I have of it is that it feels like walking through fragmented reflections of your own life. Mm. Like if your life was a mirror and it broke and you were kind of walking past all the shards. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of like small reflections of things and being lost in that. Yeah. Strange avenues where you lose all sense of direction and everywhere is Main Street in the winter sun. Strange avenues where you lose all sense of direction and everywhere is Main Street in the winter sun. Oh my gosh. A bleak image. It reminds me of there was a clip of Hank Williams later in his touring life when he was experiencing a lot of drug issues and there's a clip of him being going up to the mic and introing a song and he's like well it's wonderful to be here and <laughs> where are we boys yeah wheeling wheeling west virginia yes it's that sense of like you're touring so much that you don't have time everything becomes a blur yeah that's a fairly common thing you know i've, I've heard of other artists experiencing that Either asking where you are or naming the wrong city. Sure. It's a tough road. It really is, you know? I think the reference to the winter sun is very interesting because it not only gives us a time of year, but the winter sun is low and diffuse and faint, and so it gives everything that washed out quality. Yeah. There's no clarity. 
There's no sharp edges. And also, you expect warmth from the sun, but there's only so much the sun can do in the winter. It's an antithesis. It's an antithetical item, yeah? Yeah. The wino sleeps cold coat lined with the money section. Money section of the newspaper. Also, just a fabulous, ironical image. Looking like a record cover from 1971. That was actually something that one of the re- somebody that reviewed this album specifically referenced as they dinged it as like, oh, they're trying to pull on our nostalgic heartstrings with this lyric. Hard disagree. My strength, no one has pulled my strings. This does not pull my strings at all. I love that reference, honestly. I don't think it's a woe is me thing. I don't think it's a look at how good we were. I think it's, it's a great reference to the life of the guy who has had all of these experiences. It's 1989 right now, and so much has changed since 1971. Almost 20 years, yeah. But that is still following him. And Christ, Seven decades tour, they're still playing Aqualung. Aqualung. Yeah, right, right, right. That's a really, really good way of observing it. And at this point, they have so much material that it is easy to reference your own stuff because there's so damn much of it. There's also, in the contrast with the next quatrain, and here am I, warm feet and a limo waiting. And here am I, warm feet and a limo waiting. It reminds me a little bit of we used to know, mm. you know, talking about being cold, having no more shillings to turn the heating gas on, eating cold stew out of the can. Remember morning shilling spent, made no sense to leave the bed. The bad old days, they came and went. Giving way to fruitful years. Maybe that's a moment of like, oh man, look how far we've come. Mm. how removed perhaps we are from our origins, which can be very disorienting. And isn't there a, a line in for a thousand mothers saying, aren't you surprised that I picked you up in a limo or something like that? Oh, I think you're right. It is a kind of an interesting juxtaposition of, hey, mom and dad, look at me. You never expected this. I've made it now. And then 20 years later, it's like, oh, boy, I've still made it. I made it, guys. I am so tired. That is something that is really an interesting point. People who experience success at a relatively young age. How old was Ian when when Benefit and, and Aqualung took off? Mid, early 20s. Early 20s. Early 20s. For people who experience fame from that early age, I think there's a pretty big crash for a lot of people. There's a low survival rate. Yeah. Absolutely. Look at Macaulay Culkin, and now he's doing a bit better, but, yeah. and that's an, an extreme example. Yeah, I mean, he was super young, but. I think the younger you are, the harder. Look at Judy Garland. Look at her. <laughs> no, please, look at her. Britney Spears. Britney Spears. Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Yeah. Haley Joel Osment. Don't know who that is. The first really big M. Night Shyamalan where he sees dead people. What's that called? Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense. Thank you. Oh, he was the kid? He was the kid, yeah. Okay. So, you know, and we have to think of all of the things that we're talking about in the context of this extraordinary life. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, 
do you know that if you stop going forward, you're going to fall into darkness, but you know that to keep moving forward, you have to just keep slogging and maybe it's not fun, but you know that the alternative is worse. I mean, maybe this song is an expression of that. Yeah. Shall I make us both feel good? Would a dollar do? My God, a dollar. I guess in 1989, that meant something. In 89? But in your streets, I have no credit rating and it might not take a lot to be alone just like you. I Shall I make us both feel good? Uh, would a dollar do? But in your streets, I have no credit rating. And it might not take a lot to be alone just like you. I think that is the fear of stopping. Yeah. At this point, money is inconsequential, right? He will lose his life, quote unquote, his way of life if he were to stop. I mean, maybe he could continue to tour and just play the same stuff over and over, but there is, there's clearly a drive in this man to create more. Yeah. What's the sacrifice? What does he have to give up to do that? Right. Even if going forward means navigating this strange fog that this album seems to exist in. Yeah. I think you're pretty spot on in referencing the fragments of memories. I mean, even people who haven't been in rock bands since they were in their early 20s. I mean, I think back to snippets of memories in college or in in high school, and they feel like fever dreams a lot of the time. And that's single person memory. But when you are that exposed, that much of a celebrity, it's a shared memory of different points of view. Yes. And as a performer, there's that constant pressure to live up to your past. I mean, maybe that's, like you said, the idea of the record cover from 1971, Aqualung, the really popular songs, almost haunting. Yeah. And think about the fatigue. This is a period of time where they were touring extensively. I'm just thinking back to this past summer when I was doing that Shakespeare show and also working my full-time job and still recording. I was so tired. Yeah. And I remember I would go to the stage and... After the first week, when it kind of like, when I was like, oh, we really have something exciting here. The audience is really like my performance. After that first week, I started thinking I'd be walking up to the stage, chugging espresso and being like, how can I possibly, how can I possibly go onto that stage and do what I did last week? I'm so tired. I don't, I can't do that. It's impossible. I can't even imagine doing it. And then of course you put on your damn costume and you go and you do it. Yeah. You feed off the audience, the adrenaline, it's there, and then you crash after the fact. But having to do it over and over again, you yeah. you are constantly in that level of doubt of like, what if I'm done? Like, what if that's all I've got? Or even worse, what if they don't want me anymore? What if nobody wants to see Jeff Throttle anymore? What if nobody wants to listen to this music, new or old? You know, that's just as scary. I mean, you try and go out there with a half-hearted audience who's not giving you anything. That's the worst. Martin Alcock makes a reference to joining during a period where it seemed, and this is his perception, you know, I, we don't know. Sure, right. His memories could be clouded by the fact that he wasn't having a good time, but he felt like they were touring smaller venues mm. than they had been. And he referenced Spinal Tap. The manager in Spinal Tap says, well, you know, audiences are getting more selective. <laughs> 
<laughs> it kind of felt like that was where they were at. Yeah. I would not be surprised if there was a bit of a lull here. Surely. They were not quite legends yet. They were in that that kind of valley period before they were rock heroes to like, oh, are they going to make it? Yeah, Everybody sure. else kind of falls off here. And then they kind of crest up out of that valley, crest of a nave, up out of that valley to become the rock legends. They rise like catfish? They catfish rise, yeah. Yep. Catfish rose. My favorite type of rose. <sighs> here, love, a, a bouquet of catfish. Yeah, don't smell them. Heading up and out now from your rock island, really good to have you with me here. And somewhere in the crowd, I think a young girl whisper, are you ever lonely just like me? Heading up and out now from your rock island. Somewhere in the crowd, I think I hear a young girl whisper, whisper, are you ever lonely just like me? Oof. If there's nothing missing in my life, then why do these tears come at night? Britney Spears lucky. So again, the theme that does pervade this album is this sense of loneliness, separation, disassociation, fog, fear of falling into obscurity. Mm -hmm. Funny that Ian says this is, did he say this is the lighthearted antidote to the previous album? Oh yes, to Crest. Yeah, I think so. Or this is the dark antidote to Crest that was too happy. It's another of those dark albums which spilled from my notional pen. Yeah. It must be a different quote from somewhere. I do think that this is a dark album, you know, for all the fun that we have with Kissing Willie and everything, there is a darkness that pervades this album. You've referenced Song for a Thousand Mothers. This feels to me a bit like Benefit, mm. the vibe of it. Interesting. Where it's like, there's something dark, there's something unhappy going on. Yeah, very stark. And you can feel it through the music. And the music's fabulous. Yeah. I've got the quote here, the antidote of the more cheerful crest of a knave. It's mostly dark subject matter of alienation and desolation. Yeah. Oh, but the song Strange Avenues is still a favorite of mine. Interesting. Goodness. Yeah. Oh my God. That last line, that last haunting line of, and somewhere in the crowd, I think I hear a young girl whisper, are you ever lonely just like me? I think this is the closest we've gotten to Ian admitting that he has feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, yeah. Yeah. And that theme of the young girl, we see that so many times now in these, especially in this kind of second half of the 50 years of Tull. Yeah, right. We have Hot Nights in Budapest. A little bit later on, we have White Innocence. Mm -hmm. And we have Little Sparrow on the schoolyard wall. There does seem to be this theme of like almost an iconic or archetypical character of someone who is an embodiment of innocence and an embodiment of loneliness and unapproachable loneliness. I think it's a stand in for Ian in a way. I think we're close. I think we have to split that character into two because some of them are still like sexual prey. Whereas others are just that innocent, pure embodiment. Well, por que no los dos? 
Because some are too young. Because of the laws. Yeah, okay. Because of laws, yeah. But the antidote to loneliness is taking the fast train to Bonertown. One thinks, and then one discovers, oh no, I'm weeping on an Amtrak. Yeah. Is the Amtrak the fast train to Bonertown? No, it's the train that, it's that you get on after. Oh. It's the slow train to Regretsville. Yeah. <laughs> It's the non-stop to STD land. <laughs> Somewhere in the crowd, I think I hear a young girl whisper, whisper, are you ever lonely, just like me? We know what is coming next week, Omen. One of your favorites. Actually, one of my favorites. One of my very favorite albums, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also ranked very low on the list by official, what was it? UltimateClassicRock.com. I mean, anything from this era, I think most people poo-poo. I like them, but... Well, and they should put that poo-poo back in their hoo-hoo, because Catfish Rising is an extraordinary album. I love it. We're going to start off next week with the very first track off the album. (laughs) This is not love. Yeah, that's the sting that we use for um, reviews, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not love, yeah. Until next week, I am sleeping in the money section, Omen Thomas said. I am the young girl whispering, Nick McGill. We are somewhere in the crowd, the feckless moms. And are you ever lonely just like us? Talk tall to me. All right, next patient. Let's see. Anders Ianson, are you are you out here? Yeah, against my will. All right, come on in. Come on in. It's good to see you. I'm glad you came back. Yes. Take yes. a seat. Get comfortable. <clears throat> We've got the couch over here you can lay on if you'd like. We've got the, the wicker chair over here. I do, at your request, have the Iron Maiden over here. Um, and there's a box of tissues. I shall stand in the Iron Maiden. Thank you. Okay, sure. <laughs> Oh, thank you. You did get the sandpaper tissues I requested, did you not? Yes, I I did find an 80 grit tissue for you. Fantastic. Now, I have done my homework. You asked me to write down all of my feelings, and I have done so. Yes, please. I think that's a great place to start. I'm glad you brought that up. So, please begin. Very good. Here it is. Uh, This took me a long time. I will read you what I have. Salty. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a great place to start. I feel like salty kind of is a, is a bit of a broad subject. I mean, can you narrow down a little bit on salty? What did you experience in your week that made you feel salty, mm, yes. Mr. Ianson? It was the risotto at the hotel restaurant, which unfortunately was over-seasoned. Okay. Okay. I get it. I get it. So we're going for literal salty here. Yeah. 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 Okay. You have also told me that you are very sweaty, in which case I understand the salty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Brain Doctor, how much longer will this take to purge me of all my negative feelings? Is this almost done? I've been here for a minute and a half, surely. Surely. Right, this is session two. Mm. I have Mm. a feeling this is going to be kind of a process. The therapist on his chair looked windowward with the setting sun. 
he Are wrote you writing in something his over there, notepad, he thought that he was the only one. Oh, just doing some work, just working while you were talking, just getting some work in. Okay, right. I think that might be some of the issue is you seem, you're not working on yourself uh, hmm. per se. You are working on your, your music, which really has become your personality. One thing I found is that if I can control every single outside event, then I will be at complete peace with the world. I get that. I get that. That really settles my theory that you have a control-focused attachment style. So yes. mm. I think one way to work with this is a bit of ex- exposure therapy. I know. I know you do. I know you do. So we're going to try a little exposure therapy. Yes. I would like you to branch out, give up a little bit of that control in a safe space, and I want you to try listening to a podcast. A podcast. I know. I know. It's a lot to ask. You know, the only podcast I've ever been aware of is an absolute travesty of the airwaves. It is about the band Jethro Tull. Perhaps you have heard of them. Mm. It is a blight upon the music industry. The band or the podcast? The podcast, the podcast. Oh, oh, sure, sure. I listened to 100 seconds of it, and I passed a kidney stone. You know the one I'm talking about, of course. It is Talk Tull to Me, which disgustingly, is a proud member of the Feckless Moms Audio Network. And that's our time. Ding! Save the settings of the Iron Maiden for me.